0: this is a librivox recording for more information please visit librivox.logsom.com today's reading is by derek Elliot, the secret agent by joseph conrad chapter 12 winnie verloc the widow of mr verloc the sister of the late faithful stevie blown to fragments in a state of innocence and in the conviction of being engaged in a humanitarian enterprise did not run beyond the door of the parlour she had indeed run away so far from a mere trickle of blood but that was a movement of instinctive repulsion and there she had paused with staring eyes and lowered head as though she had run through long years in her flight across the small parlour mrs verloc by the door was quite a different person from the woman who had been leaning over the sofa, a little swimmy in her head, but otherwise free to enjoy the profound calm of idleness and irresponsibility. Mrs. Verloc was no longer giddy. Her head was steady. On the other hand, she was no longer calm. She was afraid. If she avoided looking in the direction of her reposing husband, it was not because she was afraid of him. Mr. Verloc was not frightful to behold. He looked comfortable. Moreover, he was dead. Mrs. Verloc entertained no vain delusions on the subject of the dead. Nothing brings them back, neither love nor hate. They can do nothing to you. They are as nothing. Her mental state was tinged by a sort of austere contempt for that man who had let himself be killed so easily. He had been the master of a house, the husband of a woman, and the murderer of her Stevie. And now he was of no account in every respect. He was of less practical account than the clothing on his body. "'than his overcoat, than his boots, than that hat lying on the floor. "'He was nothing. He was not worth looking at. "'He was even no longer the murderer of poor Stevie. "'The only murderer that would be found in the room "'when people came to look for Mr. Verloc would be herself. "'Her hands shook so that she failed twice in the task of refastening her veil. "'Mrs. Verloc was no longer a person of leisure and responsibility. "'She was afraid.' The stabbing of Mr. Verloc had been only a blow. It had relieved the pent-up agony of shrieks strangled in her throat, of tears dried up in her hot eyes, of the maddening and indignant rage at the atrocious part played by that man, who was less than nothing now, in robbing her of the boy. It had been an obscurely prompted blow, The blood trickling on the floor of the handle of the knife had turned it into an extremely plain case of murder. Mrs. Verloc, who always refrained from looking deep into things, was compelled to look into the very bottom of this thing. She saw there no haunting face, no reproachful shade, no vision of remorse, no sort of ideal conception. She saw there an object. That object was the gallows. Mrs. Verloc was afraid of the gallows she was terrified of them ideally having never set eyes on that last argument of men's justice except in illustrative woodcuts to a certain type of tales, she first saw them erect against a black and stormy background festooned with chains and human bones circled about by birds that peck at dead men's eyes this was frightful enough but mrs verloc though not a well-informed woman "'had a sufficient knowledge of the institutions of her country "'to know that gallows are no longer erected romantically "'on the banks of dismal rivers, or on windswept headlands, "'but in the yards of jails. "'There, within four high walls, as if into a pit, "'at dawn of day the murderer was brought out to be executed, "'with a horrible quietness, and as the reports in the newspaper always said, "'in the presence of authorities. "'With her eyes staring on the floor,' her nostrils quivering with anguish and shame, she imagined herself all along amongst a lot of strange gentlemen in still cats who were calmly proceeding about the business of hanging her by the neck. That! Never! Never! And how was it done? The impossibility of imagining the details of such quiet execution added something maddening to her abstract terror. The newspapers never gave any details except one, but that one with some affectation was always there at the end of a meagre report mrs verloc remembered its nature it came with a cruel burning pain into her head as if the words the drop given was fourteen feet that had been scratched on her brain with a hot needle the drop given was fourteen feet these words affected her physically too her throat became convulsed in waves to resist strangulation and the apprehension of the jerk was so vivid "'that she seized her head in both hands "'as if to save it from being torn off her shoulders. "'The drop given was fourteen feet. "'No! That must never be. "'She could not stand that. "'The thought of it was not even not bearable. "'She could not stand thinking of it. "'Therefore Mrs. Verloc formed the resolution to go at once "'and throw herself into the river, off one of the bridges. "'This time she managed to refasten her veil. "'With her face... "'as if masked all black from head to foot "'except for some flowers in her hat. "'She looked up mechanically at the clock. "'She thought it must have stopped. "'She could not believe that only two minutes had passed "'since she had looked at it last. "'Of course not. "'It had been stopped all the time. "'As a matter of fact, only three minutes had elapsed "'from the moment she had drawn the first deep, easy breath "'after the blow to this moment "'when Mrs. Verloc formed the resolution "'to drown herself in the Thames. "'But Mrs. Verloc could not believe that. "'She seemed to have heard... "'or read that clocks and watches always stopped at the moment of a murder "'for the undoing of the murderer. "'She did not care. "'To the bridge, and over I go.' "'But her movements were slow. "'She dragged herself painfully across the shop. "'She had to hold on to the handle of the door "'before she found the necessary fortitude to open it. "'The street frightened her, since it led either to the gallows or to the river.' She floundered over the doorstop head, forward, arms thrown out like a person falling over the parapet of a bridge. This entrance into the open air had a foretaste of drowning. A slimy dampness enveloped her, entered her nostrils, clung to her hair. It was not actually raining, but each gas lamp had a little rusty halo of mist. The van and horses were gone, and in the black street, the curtained window of the Carter's eating house... "'made a square patch of soiled blood-red light "'glowing faintly, very near the level of the pavement. "'Mrs. Verloc, dragging herself "'slowly towards it, "'though that she was a very friendless woman. "'It was true, it was so true, "'that in a sudden longing to see some friendly face "'she could think of no one else "'but of Mrs. Neal, the charwoman. "'She had no acquaintance of her own, Nobody would miss her in a social way. It must must not be imagined that the widow Verloc had forgotten her mother. This was not so. Winnie had been a good daughter because she had been a devoted sister. Her mother had always leaned on her for support. No consolation or advice could be expected there. Now that Stevie was dead, the bonds seemed to be broken. She could not face the old woman with the horrible tale. Moreover, it was too far. The river was her present destination, mrs verloc tried to forget her mother each step cost her an effort of will which seemed the last possible mrs verloc had dragged herself past the red glow of the eating-house window to the bridge and over i go she repeated to herself with fierce obstinacy she put out her hand just in time to steady herself against a lamp-post i'll never get there before morning she thought the fear of death paralyzed her efforts to escape the gallows It seemed to her she had been staggering in that street for hours. I'll never get there, she thought. They'll find me knocking about the streets. It's too far. She held on, panting under her black veil. The drop given was fourteen feet. She pushed the lamp post away from her violently and found herself walking, but another wave of faintness overtook her like a great sea, washing away her heart clean out of her breast. I will never get there, she muttered. Suddenly arrested, swaying slightly where she stood, never, and perceiving the utter impossibility of walking as far as the nearest bridge, Mrs. Verloc thought of the flight abroad. It came to her suddenly: murderers escaped; they escaped abroad; they escaped abroad—Spain or California—mere names. The vast world created for the glory of man was only a vast blank to Mrs. Verloc. She did not know which way to turn. Murders had friends, relations, helpers. They had knowledge. She had nothing. She was the most lonely of murders that ever struck a mortal blow. She was alone in London, and the whole town of marvels and mud, with its maze of streets and its mass of lights, was sunk in a hopeless night, rested at the bottom of a black abyss from which no unaided woman could hope to scramble out. She swayed forward and made a fresh start blindly with an awful dread of falling down, But at the end of a few steps, unexpectedly, she found a sensation of support, of security. Raising her head, she saw a man's face peering closely at her veil. Comrade Ossipon was not afraid of strange women, and no feeling of false delicacy could prevent him from striking an acquaintance with a woman. Apparently very much intoxicated, Comrade Ossipon was interested in women. He held up this one between his two large palms peering at her in a business-like way, till he heard her say faintly, "'Mr. Ossipon!' and then he very nearly let her drop to the ground. "'Mrs. Verloc!' he exclaimed. "'You here?' It seemed impossible to him that she should have been drinking, but one never knows. He did not go into that question, but attentive not to discourage kind fate surrendering to him the widow of Comrade Verloc, He tried to draw her to his breast. To his astonishment, she came quite easily, and even rested on his arm for a moment before she attempted to disengage herself. Comrade Osipan would not be brusque with kind fate. He withdrew his arm in a natural way. "'You recognized me?' she faltered out, standing before him, fairly steady on her legs. "'Of course I did,' said Osipan, with perfect readiness. "'I was afraid you were going to fall.' "'I've thought of you too often lately "'not to recognize you anywhere, anywhere at any time. "'I've always thought of you, ever since I first set eyes on you.' "'Mrs. Verloc seemed not to hear. "'You were coming to the shop?' she said nervously. "'Yes, at once,' answered Ossipon "'Directly. I read the paper.' "'In fact, comrade Ossipon had been skulking "'for a good two hours in the neighborhood of Brett Street, "'unable to make up his mind for a bold move.' "'the robust anarchist was not exactly a bold conqueror. "'He remembered that Mrs. Verloc had never responded to his glances "'by the slightest sign of encouragement. "'Besides, he thought the shop might be watched by the police, "'and Camrade Ossipon did not wish the police to "'to form an exaggerated notion of his revolutionary sympathies. "'Even now he did not know precisely what to do. "'In comparison with his usual amatory speculations, "'this was a big and serious undertaking.' he ignored how much there was in it and how far he supposed how, how far he would have to go in order to get hold of what there was to get supposing there was a chance at all these perplexities checking his elation imparted to his tone a soberness well in keeping with the circumstances may i ask where you are going he inquired in a subdued voice don't ask me, cried Mrs. Verloc with a shuddering, repressed violence. All her strong vitality recoiled from the idea of death. Never mind where I was going. Ossipon concluded that she was very much excited, but perfectly sober. She remained silent by his side for a moment. Then all at once she did something which he did not expect. She slipped her hand under his arm. He was startled by the act it itself, certainly, and quite as much... To by the palpably resolute character of this movement, but this being a delicate affair, Carmat Ossipon behaved with delicacy. He contented himself by pressing the hand slightly against his robust ribs. At the same time, he felt himself being impelled forward, and yielded to the impulse. At the end of Brett Street, he became aware of being directed to the left. He submitted. The fruiterer at the corner had put out the blazing glory of his oranges and lemons, and Brett Place was all darkness interspersed with the misty halos of the few lamps defining its triangular shape, with a cluster of three lights on one stand in the middle. The dark forms of the man and the woman glided slowly arm in arm along the walls with a lover-like and homeless aspect in the miserable night. What would you say if I were to tell you? "'That I was going to find you?' Mrs. Verloc asked, gripping his arm with force. "'I would say that you couldn't find anyone more ready to help you in your trouble,' answered Osipan, with a notion of making tremendous headway. In fact, the progress of his delicate affair was almost taking his breath away. "'In my trouble,' Mrs. Verloc repeated slowly. "'Yes. And do you know what my trouble is?' She whispered with strange intensity. Ten minutes after seeing the evening paper,' replied, explained Osipon with ardor, "'I met a fellow whom you may have seen once or twice at the shop, perhaps, "'and I had a talk with him, which left no doubt whatever in my mind. "'Then I started for here, wondering whether you—' "'I've been fond of you, beyond words ever since I set eyes on your face,' he cried, "'as if unable to command his feelings.' Comrade Ossipon assumed correctly that no woman was capable of wholly disbelieving such a statement, but he did not know that Mrs. Verloc accepted it with all the fierceness the instinct of self-preservation puts into the grip of a drowning person. To the widow of Mrs. Mr. Verloc, the robust anarchist, was like a radiant messenger of life. They walked slowly in step. I thought so, Mrs. Verloc murmured faintly. "'You've read it in my eyes,' suggested Ossipon with the great assurance. "'Yes,' she breathed out into his inclined ear. "'A love like mine could not be concealed from a woman like you,' he went on, "'trying to detach his mind from material considerations such as the business value of the shop "'and the amount of money Mrs. Ver- Mr. Verloc might have left in the bank. "'He applied himself to the sentimental side of the affair. "'In his heart of hearts he was a little shocked at his success.' Verloc had been a good fellow and certainly a very decent husband as far as one could see. However, Comrade Osipan was not going to quarrel with his luck for the sake of a dead man. Resolutely, he suppressed his sympathy for the ghost of Comrade Verloc and went on. I could not conceal it. I was too full of you. I dare say you could not help seeing it in my eyes. But I could not guess it. You were always so distant. "'What else did you expect?' burst out Mrs. Verloc. "'I was a respectable woman.' "'She paused, then added, as if speaking to herself in sinister resentment, "'Till he made me what I am.' "'Oh, let that pass,' and took up his running. "'He never did seem to me to be quite worthy of you,' he began, "'throwing loyalty to the winds. "'You were worthy of a better fate.' "'Mrs. Verloc interrupted bitterly. "'Better fate? "'He cheated me out of seven years of life.' "'You seem to live so happily with him,' Osipon tried to exculpate the lukewarmness of his past conduct. "'It's that what's made me timid. "'You seem to love him. "'I was surprised and jealous,' he added. "'Love him?' Mrs. Verloc cried out in a whisper, full of scorn and rage. "'Love him? "'I was a good wife to him. "'I am a respectable woman. "'You thought I loved him? "'You did. "'Look here, Tom.' The sound of this name thrilled Comrade Ossipon with pride, for his name was Alexander, and he was called Tom by arrangement with the most familiar of his intimates. It was a name of friendship, of moments of expansion. He had no idea that she had ever heard it, used by anybody. It was apparent that she had not only caught it, but had treasured it in her memory, perhaps in her heart. Look here, Tom. I was a young girl. I was done up. I was tired. I had two people depending on what I could do, and it did seem as if I couldn't do any more. Two people, mother and the boy. He was much more mine than mother's. I sat up nights and nights with him on my lap, all alone upstairs, when I wasn't more than eight years old myself. And then he was mine, I tell you. You can't understand that. No man can understand it. What was I to do? There was a young fellow. "'The memory of the early romance with the young butcher "'survived tenacious like the image of a glimpsed ideal "'in that heart quailing before the fear of the gallows "'and full of revolt against death. "'That was the man I loved then,' went on the widow of Mrs. Mr. Verloc. "'I suppose he could see it in my eyes to five and twenty shillings a week, "'and his father threatened to kick him out with the business "'if he made such a fool of himself as to marry a girl with a crippled mother "'and a crazy idiot of a boy on her hands.' "'but he would hang about me till one evening "'I found the courage to slam the door in his face. "'I had to do it. "'I loved him dearly. Five and twenty shillings a week. "'There was that other man, a good lodger. "'What is a, what is a girl to do? "'Could I have gone on the streets? "'He seemed kind. "'He wanted me anyhow. "'What was I to do with mother and that poor boy, eh? "'I said yes. "'He seemed good-natured he was free-handed, he had money, he never said anything. Seven years, seven years a good wife to him, the kind, the good, the generous, the and he loved me, oh yes, he loved me, till I sometimes wished myself. Seven years, seven years a wife to him. And do you know what he was, that dear friend of yours? Do you know what he was? He was a devil. The superhuman vehem- vehem- vehemence of that whispered statement completely stunned Carmat Ossipon. Winnie Verloc, turning about, held him by both arms, facing him under the falling mist and the darkness and solitude of Brett Place, in which all sounds of life seemed lost as if in a triangular well of asphalt and bricks, of blind houses and unfeeling stones. no, I didn't know, he declared, with a sort of flabby stupidity, whose comical aspect was lost upon a woman haunted by the fear of the gallows. But I do now, I I understand, he floundered on, his mind speculating as to what sort of atrocities Verloc could have practiced under the sleepy, placid appearances of his married estate. It was positively awful. I understand, he repeated, and then, by a sudden inspiration, uttered, unhappy woman of lofty commiseration instead of the more familiar poor darling of his usual practice this was no usual case he felt conscious of something abnormal going on while he never lost sight of the greatness of the stake unhappy brave woman he was glad to have discovered that variation but he could discover nothing else ah but he is dead now was the best he could do and he put a remarkable amount of animosity into his guarded exclamation. Mrs. Verloc caught at his arm, with a sort of frenzy. "'You guessed, then, he was dead?' she murmured, as if beside herself. "'You? You guessed what I had to do? Had to?' There were suggestions of triumph, relief, gratitude in the indefinable tone of these words. It engrossed the whole attention of Osipon to the detriment of mere literal sense. He wondered what was up with her why she had worked herself into this state of wild excitement. He even began to wonder whether the hidden causes of that Greenwich Park affair did not lie deep in the unhappy circumstances of the Verloc's married life. He went so far as to suspect Mr. Verloc of having selected that extraordinary manner of committing suicide by Jove that would account for the utter inanity and wrongheadedness of the thing no anarchist manifestation was required by the circumstances quite the contrary and verloc was as well aware of that as any other revolutionist of his standing what an immense joke if verloc had simply made fools of the whole of europe of the revolutionary world of the police of the press and of the cocksure professor as well indeed thought Ossipon in astonishment it seemed almost certain that he did poor beggar. It struck him as very possible that the household of two it wasn't precisely the man who was the devil. Alexander Ossipon, nicknamed the doctor, was naturally inclined to think indulgently of his men friends. He eyed Mrs. Verloc hanging on his arm. Of his women friends he thought in a specially practical way why Mrs. Verloc should exclaim at his knowledge of Mr. Verloc's death, which was no guess at all, did not disturb him beyond measure. They often talked like lunatics, but he was curious to know how she had been informed. The papers could tell her nothing beyond the the mere fact, the man blown to pieces in Greenwich Park, not having been identified. It was inconceivable on any theory that Verloc should have given her an inkling of his intention, whatever it was. This problem interested comrade Osipan immensely. He stopped short. They had gone then along the three sides of Brett Place, and were near the end of Brett Street again. How did you first come to hear of it? He asked in a tone he tried to render appropriate to the character of the revelations which had been made to him by the woman at his side. She shook violently for a while before she answered in a listless voice, From the police. A chief inspector came. Chief Inspector Heat, he said he was. He showed me. Mrs. Verloc choked, Oh, Tom, they had to gather him up with a shovel. Her breast heaved with dry sobs. In a moment, Ossipon found his tongue. The police? Do you mean to say the police came already? The Chief Inspector Heat himself actually came to tell you? Yes, she confirmed in the same listless tone. He came just like this. He came... I didn't know. He, he showed me a piece of overcoat, and just like that. Do you know this? He says... "'Heat? "'Heat? "'And what did he do?' "'Mrs. Verloc's head dropped. "'Nothing. "'He did nothing. "'He went away. "'The police were on that man's side,' she murmured tragically. "'Another one came, too.' "'Another?' "'Another inspector, do you mean?' "'asked Osipon in great excitement, "'and very much in the tone of a scared child. "'I don't know. "'He came... "'He looked like a foreigner. "'He may have been one of them embassy people.' Comrade Ossipon nearly collapsed under this new shock. "'Embassy? Are you aware what you are saying? What embassy? What on earth do you mean by embassy? It's that place in Chesham Square. The people he cursed, so I, I don't know. What does it matter?' "'And that fellow, what did he say or do to you?' "'I don't remember. Nothing. I don't care. Don't ask me,' she pleaded in a weary voice. "'All right.' "'I won't,' assented Osipon tenderly, and he meant it too, "'not because he was touched by the pathos of the pleading voice, "'but because he felt himself losing his footing "'in the depths of this teneb- tenebrious affair. "'Police? Embassy? Phew! The, "'For fear of adventuring his intelligences into ways "'where its natural lights might fail to guide it safely, "'he dismissed that resolutely at all. "'He dismissed resolutely all suppositions.' surmises and theories out of his mind he had the woman there absolutely flinging herself at him and that was the principal consideration but after what he had heard nothing could astonish him any more and when mrs verloc as if startled suddenly out of a dream of safety began to urge upon him wildly the necessity of an immediate flight on the continent he did not exclaim in the least he simply said with unaffected regret that there was no train till the morning and stood still, looking thoughtfully at her face, veiled in black net in the light of a gas pump veiled in a gauze of mist. Near him, her black form merged into the night, like a figure half chiseled out of a block of black stone. It was impossible to say what she knew, how deep she was involved with policemen and embassies, but if she wanted to get away, it was not for him to object. He was anxious to be off himself. He felt that the business... "'The shop so strangely familiar to the chief inspectors "'and members of foreign embassies "'was not the place for him. "'That must be dropped, but there was the rest. "'These savings! The money! "'You must hide me till morning. "'Somewhere,' she said in a dismayed voice. "'Fact is, my dear, I can't take you where I live. "'I share the room with a friend.' "'He was somewhat dismayed himself. "'In the morning, the blessed Tex "'would be out in all stations, no doubt.' "'and if they once got hold of her for one reason or another "'she would be lost to him indeed. "'But you must. "'Don't you care for me at all? "'At all? "'What are you thinking of?' "'She said this violently, "'but she let her clasped hands fall in discouragement. "'There was a silence while the mist fell "'and darkness reigned undisturbed over breath place. "'Not a soul, not even the vagabond, lawless, and amorous soul of a cat came near the man "'and the woman facing each other.' It would be possible, perhaps, to find a safe lodging somewhere, Osipan spoke at last, but the truth is, my dear, I have not enough money to go and try with, only a few pence. We revolutionists are not rich. He had fifteen shillings in his pocket, he added. And there's the journey before us, too, first thing in the morning at that. She did not move, made no sound, and comrade Osipan's heart sank a little. Apparently she had no suggestion to offer. Suddenly she clutched at her breast. "'as if she had felt a sharp pain there. "'But I have,' she gasped. "'I have the money. "'I have enough money. "'Tom, let us go from here.' "'How much have you got?' "'he inquired without stirring to her tug, "'for he was a cautious man. "'I have the money, I tell you. "'All the money. "'What do you mean by it? "'All the money that was in the bank, or what?' "'he asked incredulously, "'but ready not to be surprised "'by anything in the way of luck.' yes yes she said nervously all there was i have it all how on earth did you manage to get hold of it already he marvelled he gave it to me she murmured suddenly subdued and trembling comrade ossipon put down his rising surprise with a firm hand why then we are saved he uttered slowly she leaned forward and sank against his breast he welcomed her there she had all the money her hat was in the way of very marked effusion her veil too he was adequate in his manifestations but no more she received them without resistance and without abandonment passively as if only half sensible she freed herself from his lax embraces without difficulty you will save me tom she broke out recoiling but still keeping her hold on him by the two lapels of his damp coat save me "'Hide me. Don't let them have me. You must kill me first. I couldn't do it myself. I couldn't. I couldn't. Not even for what I am afraid of.' She was confoundedly bizarre, he thought. She was beginning to inspire him with an indefinite uneasiness. He said surlily, for he was busy with important thoughts. "'What the devil are you afraid of?' "'Haven't you guessed what I was driven to do?' cried the woman, distracted by the vividness of her dreadful apprehensions, her head ringing with forceful words that kept the horror of her position before her mind. She had imagined her incoherence to be clearness itself. She had no conscious of how little she had audibly said in the disjointed phrases completed only in her thought. She had felt the relief of a full confession— Sh- and she gave a special meaning to every sentence spoken by comrade Ossipon, whose knowledge did not in the least resemble her own haven't you guessed what i was driven to do her voice fell you needn't be long in guessing then what i'm afraid of she continued in a bitter and somber mur- murmur i won't have it i i won't i i won't you must promise to kill me first she shook the lapels of his co- of his coat it must never be He assured her curtly that no promises on his part were necessary, but he took good care not to contradict her in set terms because he had had much to do with excited women, and he was inclined, in general, to let his experience guide his conduct in preference to applying his sagacity to each special case. His sagacity in this case was busy in other directions. Women's words fell into water, But the shortcomings of timetables remained the insular nature of great britain obtruded itself upon his notice in an odious form might just as well be put under lock and key every night he thought irritably as nonplussed as though he had a wall to scale with a woman on his back suddenly he slapped his forehead he had a dint of cudging cudgingly cudgeling his brains "'just thought above this, of the Southampton-St. Mallow service. "'The boat left about midnight. "'There was a train at ten-thirty. "'He became cheery and ready to act. "'From Waterloo. Plenty of time. "'We are all right, after all. "'What's the matter now? "'This isn't the way,' he protested. "'Mrs. Verloc, having hooked her arm into his, "'was trying to drag him into Brett Street again. "'I forgot to shut the shop door as I went out,' she whispered, "'terribly agitated.' The shop, and all that was in it, had ceased to interest, comrade Ossipon. He knew how to limit his desires. He was on the point of saying, "'What of that? Let it be!' but he refrained. He disliked argument about trifles. He even mended his pace considerably on the thought that she might have left the money in the drawer, but his willingness lagged behind her feverish impatience. The shop seemed to be quite dark at first. The door stood ajar mrs verloc leaning against the front gasped out nobody has been in look the light the light in the parlour ossipon stretching his head forward saw a faint gleam in the darkness of the shop there is he said i forgot it mrs verloc's voice came from behind her veil faintly and as he stood waiting for her to enter first she said louder Go in and put it out or i'll go mad he made no immediate objection to this proposal so strangely motivated where's all that money he asked on me go tom quick put it out go in she cried seizing by him by both shoulders from behind not prepared for a display of physical force comrade osipan stumbled far into the shop before her push he was astonished at the strength of the woman and scandalized by her proceedings but he did not retrace his steps in order to re- remonstrate with her severely in the street. He was beginning to be dis- disagreeably de- impressed by her fantastic behavior. Moreover, this or never was the time to humor the woman. Comrade Ossipon avoided easily the end of the counter and approached calmly the glazed door of the parlor. The curtain over the panes being drawn back a little, he by a very natural impulse, looked in just as he made ready to turn the handle. He looked in without a thought, without intention, without curiosity of any sort. He looked in because he could not help looking in. He looked in and discovered Mr. Verloc reposing quietly on the sofa. A yell coming from the innermost depths of his chest died out unheard and transformed into a sort of greasy, sickly, taste on his lips. At the same time, the mental personality of comrade Ossipon executed a frantic leap backward, but his body, left thus without intellectual guidance, held on to the door handle with the unthinking force of an instinct. The robust anarchist did not even totter. And he stared, his face close to the glass, his eyes protruding out of his head. He would have given anything to get away, but his returning reason informed him that it would not do to let go the door-handle. What was it? Madness, a nightmare, or a trap into which he had been decoyed with fiendish fiendish artfulness? Why, what for, he did not know. Without any sense of guilt in his breast, in the full peace of his conscience, as far as these people were concerned, the idea that he would be murdered for mysterious reasons by the couple Verloc passed not so much across his mind as across the pit of his stomach, and went out, leaving behind a trail of sickly faintness, an indisposition. Comrade Ossipon did not feel very well in a very special way for a moment, a long moment, and he stared. Mr. Verloc lay very still meanwhile, simulating sleep for reasons of his own, while that savage woman of his was guarding the door, invisible and silent in the dark and deserted street. Was all this some sort of terrifying arrangement invented by the police for his special benefit? His modesty shrank from that explanation. But the true sense of the scene he was beholding came to Osipan through the contemplation of the hat. It seemed an extraordinary thing, ominous object, a sign. Black and rim upward, it lay on the floor before the couch, as if prepared to receive the contributions of pence from people who would come presently to behold Mr. Verloc in the fullness of his domestic ease reposing on a sofa. From the hat, the eyes of the robust anarchist wandered to the displaced table, gazed at the broken dish for a time, received a kind of optical shock from observing a white gleam under the imperfectly closed eyelids of the man on the couch. Mr. Verloc did not seem so much asleep now as lying down with a bent head and looking insistently at his left breast. And when Comrade Ossipon had made out the handle of the knife, he turned away from the glazed door and retched violently. The crash of the street door flung to make... To made his very soul leap in a panic this house with its harmless tenant could still be made a trap a trap of a terrible kind comrade osipan hadn't had no settled conception now of what was happening to him catching his thigh against the end of the counter he spun round staggered with a cry of pain felt in the distracting clatter of the bell his arms pinned to his side by a com- convulsive hug "'while the cold lips of a woman moved creepily "'on his very ear to form the words. "'Policeman! He has seen me!' "'He ceased to struggle. "'She never let him go. "'Her hands had locked themselves "'with an inseparable twist of fingers on his robust back. "'While the footsteps approached, they breathed quickly, "'breast to breast, with hard-laboured breaths, "'as if theirs had been the altitude of a deadly struggle.' while, in fact, it was the attitude of deadly fear, and the time was long. The constable on the beat had in truth seen something of Mrs. Verloc, only coming from the lighted thoroughfare at the other end of Brett Street. She had been no more to him than a flutter in the darkness, and he was not even quite sure that there had been a flutter. He had no reason to hurry up on coming abreast of the shop he observed that it had been closed early. There was nothing very unusual in that the men on duty had special instructions about that shop. What went on about what went on about there was not to be meddled with unless absolutely disorderly, but any observation made were to be reported. There were no observations to make, but from a sense of duty and for the peace of his conscience, owing also. To the doubtful, to that doubtful flutter in the darkness, the constable crossed the road and tried the door. The spring latch, whose key was reposing, forever off duty in the late Mr. Verloc's waistcoat, poc- waistcoat pocket, held as well as usual. While the conscientious officer was shaking the handle, Osipan felt the cold lips of the woman stirring again creepily against his very ear. "'If he comes in, kill me,' Kill me, Tom. The constable moved away, flashing as he passed the light of his dark lantern, merely for form's sake at the shop window. For a moment longer, the man and the woman inside stood motionless, panting, breast to breast. Then her fingers came unlocked. Her arms fell by her side slowly. Osipan leaned against the counter. The robust anarchist was supported badly, this was awful. He was almost too disgusted for speech, yet he managed to utter a plaintive, a plaintive thought, showing at least that he realized his position. Only a couple of minutes later, and you'd have made me blunder against the fellow poking about there with his damned dark lantern. The widow of Mr. Verloc, motionless in the middle of the shop, said insistently, Go in and put the light out, Tom. It will drive me crazy. She saw vaguely his vehement gesture of refusal. Nothing in the world would have induced Osipan to go into the parlor. He was not superstitious, but there was too much blood on the floor, a beastly pool of it all around the hat. He judged he had been already far too near that corpse for his peace of mind, for the safety of his neck, perhaps. At the meter, then. There, look, in the corner. The robust form of comrade Ossipon striding brusque, and shadowy across the shop, squatted in a corner obediently, and this obedience was without grace. He fumbled nervously, and suddenly, in the sound of a muttering curse, the light behind the glazed door flicked out to a gasping, hysterical sigh of a woman. Night, the inevitable reward of men's faithful labors on this earth. Night had fallen on Mr. Verloc, the tried revolutionist, one of the old lot, the humble guardian of society, the invaluable secret agent, Delta, of Baron Stott Wartenheim's dispatches, a servant of law and order, faithful, trusted, accurate, admirable, and perhaps one single amiable weakness, the idealistic belief in being loved for himself. Ossipon groped his way back through the stuffy atmosphere, as black as ink now, to the counter. The voice of Mrs. Verloc standing in the middle of the shop vibrated after him in that blackness with a desperate protest. I will not be hanged, Tom, I will not. She broke off. Osipon from the counter issued a warning. Don't shout like this. Then seemed to reflect profoundly. You did this thing quite by yourself? He inquired in a hollow voice, but with an appearance of masterful calmness, which filled Mrs. Verloc's heart with grateful confidence in his protecting strength. Yes, she whispered, invisible. "'I wouldn't have believed it possible,' he muttered. "'Nobody would.' "'She heard him move about, and the snapping of a lock in the parlour door. "'Comrade Ossipan had turned the key on Mr. Verloc's repose, "'and this he did not from reverence for his, its eternal nature "'or any other obscurely sentimental consideration, "'but for the precise re- reason that he was not at all sure "'that there was not someone else hiding somewhere in the house. "'He did not believe the woman.' Or rather, he was incapable by now of judging what could be true, possible, or even probable in this astounding universe. He was terrified out of all capacity for belief or disbelief in regard of this extraordinary affair, which began with police inspectors and embassies and would end goodness knows where, on the scaffold for someone. He was terrified at the thought that he could not prove the use he made of his time ever since 7 o'clock. "'for he'd been skulking about Brett Street. "'He was terrified at this savage woman "'who had brought him in here "'and would probably saddle him with complicity, "'at least if he were not careful. "'He was terrified at the rapidity "'with which he had been involved in such dangers, decoyed into it. "'It was some twenty minutes since he had met her, "'not more. "'The voice of Mrs. Verloc rose subdued, "'pleading piteously, "'Don't let them hang me, Tom.' "'You take me out of this country. "'I'll work for you. "'I'll slave for you. I'll, "'I'll love you. "'I'm no one in the world "'who would look at me if you don't.' "'She ceased for a moment. "'Then in the depths of the loneliness "'she made round by her "'an insignificant thread of blood "'trickling off the handle of a knife, "'she found a dreadful inspiration to her, "'who had been the respectable girl "'of the Belgravian mansion, "'the loyal, respectable wife of Mr. Verloc. "'I won't ask you to marry me,' she breathed out in shamefaced accents. "'She moved a step forward in the darkness. She was terrified. "'He was terrified at her. "'He would not have been surprised if she had suddenly produced another knife destined for his breast. "'He certainly would have made no resistance. "'He had really not enough fortitude in him just then to tell her to keep back. "'But he inquired in a cavernous, strange tone. "'Was he asleep?' "'No.' she cried and went on rapidly. He wasn't. Not he. He had been telling me that nothing could touch him. After taking the boy away from under my very eyes to kill him, the loving, innocent, harmless lad, my own, I tell you, he was lying on the couch quite easy after killing the boy, my boy. I would have gone on the streets to get out of his sight, and he says to me like this, Come here, after telling me I had helped to kill the boy. You hear, Tom? He says like this, come here, after taking my very heart out of me along with the boy to smash in the dirt. She ceased, then dreamily repeated twice, blood and dirt, blood and dirt. A great light broke upon Carmados upon. It was that half-witted lad then who had perished in the park, and the fooling of everybody all round appeared more complete than ever. Colossal! he exclaimed scientifically in the extremity of his astonishment the degenerate by heavens come here the voice of mrs. Verloc rose again what did he think I was made of tell me Tom come here me like this I had been looking at the knife and I thought I would come then if he wanted me so much oh yes I came for the last time with the knife he was excessively terrified at her, the sister of the degenerate, a degenerate herself of a murdering type, or else of the lying type. Comrade Ossipon might have been said to be terrified scientifically in addition to all other kinds of fear. It was an immeasurable and composite funk which fr- from its very excess gave him the dark gave him in the dark a false appearance of calm and thoughtful deliberation. For he moved and spoke with difficulty, being as if half frozen in his will and mind, and no one could see his ghastly face, he felt half dead. He leaped a foot high. Unexpectedly, Mrs. Verloc had desecrated the unbroken, reserved decency of her home by a shrill and terrible shriek. Help, Tom! Save me! I won't be hanged! He rushed forward, groping for her mouth with a silencing hand, and the shriek died out. But in his rush, he had knocked her over. He felt her now clinging round his legs, and his terror reached its culminating point, became a sort of intoxication, entertained delusions, acquired the characteristics of delirium tremens. He positively saw snakes now. He saw the woman twined round him, like a snake, not to be shaken off. She was not deadly. She was death itself, the companion of life. "'Mrs. Verloc, as if relieved by the outburst, was very far from behaving noisily now. "'She was pitiful. "'Tom, you can't throw me off now,' she murmured from the floor, "'not unless you crush my head under your heel. "'I won't leave you.' "'Get up,' said Asapon. "'His face was so pale as to be quite visible in the profound black darkness of the shop. "'While Mrs. Verloc, veiled, had no face, almost no discernible form, "'the trembling of something small and white, a flower in her hat, "'marked her place, her movements.' It rose in the blackness. She had got up from the floor, and Ossipan regretted not having run out at once into the street. But he perceived easily that it would not do. It would not do. She would run after him. She would pursue him, shrieking, till she sent every policeman within hearing and chase. And then goodness only knew what she would say of him. He was so frightened that for a moment the insane notion of strangling her in the dark passed through his mind, and he became more frightened than ever. She had him. He saw himself living in abject terror in some obscure hamlet in Spain or Italy till some fine morning they found him dead too, with a knife in his breast, like Mr. Verloc. He sighed deeply, he dared not move, and Mrs. Verloc waited in silence the good pleasure of her saviour, deriving comfort from his reflexive silence. Suddenly he spoke in an almost natural voice. His reflections had come to an end. Let's get out. "'or we will lose the train.' "'Where are we going to, Tom?' she asked timidly. "'Mrs. Verloc was no longer a free woman. "'Let's get to Paris first, the best way we can. "'Get out first and see if the way's clear.' "'She obeyed. Her voice became subdued through the cautiously opened door. "'It's all right.' "'Ossipon came out, notwithstanding his endeavours to be gentle.' The cracked bell clattered behind the closed door in the empty shop, as if trying in vain to warn the reposing Mr. Verloc of the final departure of his wife, accompanied by his friend. In the hansom they presently picked up, the robust anarchist became explanatory. He was still awfully pale, with eyes that seemed to have sunk a whole half-inch into his tense face, but he seemed to have thought of everything with an extraordinary method. "'When we arrive,' he discoursed in a queer, monotonous tone, "'you must go into the station ahead of me, "'as if we did not know each other. "'I will take the tickets and slip in yours yours into your hand as I pass you. "'Then you will go into the first-class ladies' waiting room "'and sit there till ten minutes before the train starts. "'Then you come out. I will be outside. "'You go in first on the platform as if you do not know me. "'There may be eyes watching.' "'there that know what's what. "'Alone you are only a woman going off by train. "'I am known. "'With me you may be guessed at as Mrs. Verloc running away. "'Do you understand, my dear?' he added with an effort. "'Yes,' said Mrs. Verloc, "'sitting there against him in a hansom, "'all rigid with the dread of the gallows and the fear of death. "'Yes, Tom.' "'And she added to herself like an awful refrain. "'The drop given was fourteen feet.' ossipon not looking at her and with a face like a fresh plaster cast of himself after a wasting illness said by the by i ought to have the money for the tickets now mrs furlock undoing some hooks of her bodice while she went on staring ahead beyond the splashboard handed him the new pigskin pocketbook he received it without a word and seemed to plunge it deep somewhere into his very breast then he slapped his coat on the outside All this was done without the exchange of a single glance. They were like two people looking out for the first sight of a desired goal. It was not till the hansom swung around the corner and towards the bridge that Ossipon opened his lips again. Do you know how much money there is in that thing? he asked, as if addressing slowly some hobgoblin sitting between the ears of the horse. No, said Mrs. Verlock. He gave it to me. I didn't count. I, I thought nothing of it at the time. Afterwards, she moved her hand a little. "'It was so expressive that the little movement of that hand "'which had struck the deadly blow into the man's heart "'less than an hour before that Ossipon could not repress a shudder. "'He exaggerated it then purposely and muttered, "'I am cold. I got chilled through. "'Mrs. Verloc looked straight ahead at the perspective of her escape. "'Now and then, like a sable streamer blown across a road, "'the words, the drop given, was fourteen feet, "'got in the way of her tense stare.' Through her black veil the whites of her big eyes gleamed lustrously like the eyes of a masked woman. Ossipon's rigidity had something businesslike, a queer official expression. He was heard again all of a sudden, as though he had released a catch in order to speak. "'Look here. Do you know whether your, whether he kept his account at the bank in his own name or in some other name?' Mrs. Verloc turned upon him, her masked face and the big white gleam of her eyes." "'Other name?' she said thoughtfully. "'Be exact in what you say,' Ossipon lectured in the swift motion of the hansom. "'It's extremely important. I will explain to you. "'The bank has the numbers of these notes. "'If they were paid to him in his own name, "'and when his, his death, becomes known, "'the notes may serve to track us, since we have no other money. "'You have no other money on you.' "'She shook her head negatively.' ''None whatever,'' he insisted. ''A few coppers?'' ''It would be dangerous in that case. The money would have then to be dealt specially with, very specially. We'd have perhaps to lose more than half the amount in order to get these notes changed in a certain safe place I know of in Paris. In the other case, I mean, if he had his account and got paid out under some other name, say Smith, for instance, the money is perfectly safe to us. You understand?'' The bank has no means of knowing that Mr. Verloc and, say, Smith are one and the same person. Do you see how important it is that you should make no mistake in answering me? Can you answer that query at all? Perhaps not, eh? She said composedly, I remember now. He didn't bank in his own name. He told me once that it was on deposit in the name of Prozor. You're sure? Certain. You don't think the bank had any knowledge of his real name or anybody in the bank?' She shrugged her shoulders. How can I know? Is it likely, Tom? No, I suppose it's not likely. It would have been more comfortable to know. Here we are. Get out first and walk straight in. Move smartly. He remained behind and paid the cabman out of his own loose silver. The program, traced by his minute foresight, was carried out. When Mrs. Verloc, with her ticket for St. Mallow in her hand, entered the ladies' waiting-room, Comrade Ossipon walked into the bar and in seven minutes absorbed three goes of hot brandy and water. "'Trying to drive out a cold,' he explained to the barmaid with a friendly nod and grimacing smile. Then he came out, bringing out from that festive interlude the face of a man who had drunk at the very fountain of sorrow. He raised his eyes to the clock. It was time. He waited.' Punctual, Mrs. Verloc came out and her with her veil down, and all black, black, as commonplace death itself, crowned with a few cheap and pale flowers. She passed close to a little group of men who were laughing, but whose laughter could have been struck dead by a single word. Her walk was indolent, but her back was straight, and Comrade Ossipon looked after it in terror before making a start himself. The train was drawing up and hardly anybody about its row of open doors owing to the time of year and to the abominable weather there were hardly any passengers mrs verloc walked slowly along the line of empty compartments till ossipon touched her elbow from behind in here she got in and remained on the platform looking about she bent forward and in a whisper what is it tom is there any danger wait a moment there's the guard she saw him accost the man in uniform they talked for a while She heard the guard say, Very well, sir, and saw him touch his cap. Then Aspon came back, saying, I told him not to let anybody get into our compartment. She was leaning forward on her seat. You think of everything. You'll get me off, Tom, she asked with a gust gust of anguish, lifting her veil brusquely to look at her savior. She had uncovered a face like adamant, and out of this face the eyes looked on, big, dry, enlarged, lightless, burnt out of... "'like two black holes in the white shining globes. "'There is no danger,' he said, "'gazing into them with an earnestness, almost rapt, "'which to Mrs. Verloc, flying from the gallows, "'seemed to be full of force and tenderness. "'This devotion deeply moved her, "'and the adamantine face lost the stern rigidity of its terror. "'Comrade Ossipon gazed at it. "'No lover ever gazed at at his mistress's face.' Alexander Ossipon, anarchist, nicknamed the doctor, author of a medical and improper pamphlet, late lecturer on the social aspects of hygiene to working men's club, was free from the trammels of conventional morality, but he submitted to the rule of science. He was scientific, and he gazed scientifically at that one, the sister of a degenerate, a degenerate herself, of a murdering type. He gazed at her and invoked Lombroso, "'as an Italian peasant recommends himself to his favorable saint. "'He gazed scientifically. "'He gazed at her cheeks, at her nose, at her eyes, at her ears. "'Bad. Fatal. "'Mrs. Verloc's pale lips parting slightly relaxed under his passionately attentive gaze. "'He gazed also at her teeth. "'Not a doubt remained. A murdering type.' If Karmad did not recommend his terrified soul to Lombroso, it was only because on scientific grounds he could not believe that he carried about him such a thing as a soul. But he had in him the scientific spirit, which moved him to testify on the platform of a railway station in nervous, jerky phrases. He was an extraordinary lad, that brother of yours, most interesting to study, a perfect type in a way, perfect. He spoke scientifically, in his secret fear, and Mrs. Verloc, hearing these words of commendation vouchsafed to her beloved dead, swayed forward with a flicker of light in her somber eyes, like a ray of sunshine heralding a tempest of rain. He was that indeed, she whispered softly, with quivering lips. You took a lot of notice of him, Tom. I loved you for it. It's almost incredible the resemblance there was between you two, pursued Ossipon, giving a voice to his abiding dread and trying to conceal his nervous, sickening impatience for the train to start. Yes, he resembled you. These words were not especially touching or sympathetic, but the fact of that resemblance insisted upon was enough in itself to act upon her emotions powerfully. With a little faint cry, and throwing her arms out, Mrs. Verloc burst into tears at last. Ossipon entered the carriage, hastily closed the door, and looked out to see the time by the station clock eight minutes more for the first three of these mrs verloc wept violently and helplessly without pause or interruption then she recovered somewhat and sobbed gently in an abundant fall of tears she tried to talk to her savior to the man who was the messenger of life oh tom how could i fear to die after he was taken away from me so cruelly how could i how could i be such a coward she lamented aloud her love of life that life without grace or charm and almost without decency, but of an exalted faithfulness, of purpose even unto murder, and as often happens in the lament of poor humanity, rich in suffering, but indignant in words, the truth, the very cry of truth, was found in a worn and artificial shape, picked up somewhere among the phrases of sham sentiment. How could I be so afraid of death? Tom, I tried, but I am afraid. I tried to do away with myself, and I couldn't. I am, am I hard? I suppose the cup of horrors was not full enough for such as me. Then when you came... She paused, then a gust of confidence and gratitude. I will live all my days for you, Tom, she sobbed out. Go over into the other corner of the carriage, away from the platform, said Asipan solicitously. She let her save, savior settle her comfortably, and he watched the coming on up another crisis of weeping, still more violent than the first. He watched the symptoms with a sort of medical air, as if counting the seconds. He heard the guards whistle at last. An involuntary contraction of the upper lip bared his teeth with all the aspect of savage resolution as he felt the train beginning to move. Mrs. Verloc had felt nothing, and Ossipon, her savior, stood still. He felt the train roll quicker. "'Rumbling heavy to the sound of the woman's loud sobs "'and then crossing the carriage in two long strides, "'he opened the door deliberately and leaped out. "'He had leaped out at the very end of the platform, "'and such was his determination in sticking to his desperate plan "'that he managed by a sort of miracle, "'performed almost in the air to slam to the door of the carriage. "'Only then did he find himself rolling head over heels like a shot rabbit.' He was bruised, shaken, pale as death, and out of breath when he got up, but he was calm and perfectly able to meet the excited crowd of railwaymen who had gathered round him in a moment. He explained in a gentle and convincing tone that his wife had started at a moment's notice for Brittany to her dying mother, that, of course, she was greatly upset and he considerably concerned at her state. he was trying to cheer her up and he had absolutely failed to notice at first that the train was moving out to the general exclamation why didn't you go on to southampton then sir he objected with the inexperience of a young sister-in-law left alone in the house with three small children and her alarm at his absence the telegraph office being closed he acted on impulse but i don't think i'll ever try that again he concluded smiled all around distributed some small change and marched without a limp out of the station "'Outside, Comrade Ossipon, flush of safe banknotes, "'has never before in his life refused the offer of a cab. "'I can walk,' he said with a little friendly laugh to the civil driver. "'He could walk. He walked. He crossed the bridge. "'Later, on the towers of the abbey, saw in their massive immobility "'the yellow bush of his hair passing under the lamps. "'The lights of Victoria saw him too in Sloane Square and the railings of the park.' and Kamar once more found himself on a bridge. The river, a sinister marvel of still shadows and flowing gleams mingling below in a black silence, arrested his attention. He stood looking over the parapet for the first time. The clock tower boomed a brazen blast above his drooping head. He looked up at the dial. Half past twelve of a wild night in the channel. And again, comrade Asipan walked. His robust form was seen that night on distant parts of the enormous town, slumbering monstrously on a carpet of mud under a veil of raw mist. It, It was seen crossing the streets without life and sound, or diminishing in the interminable straight perspectives of shadowy houses bordering empty roadways, lined by strings of gas lamps. He walked through squares, places, ovals, commons, through monotonous streets with unknown names, where the dust of humanity settles inert and hopeless out of the stream of life. He walked, and suddenly turning into a strip of a front garden with a mangy grass plot, he let himself into a small, grimy house with a latch-key he took out of his pocket. He threw himself down on his bed, all dressed, and lay still for a whole quarter of an hour. Then he sat up suddenly, drawing up his knees and clasping his legs the first dawn found him open-eyed in that same posture. This man who could walk so long, so far, so aimlessly, without showing a sign of fatigue, could also remain sitting still for hours, without stirring a limb or an eyelid. But when the late sun sent its rays into the room, he unclasped his hands and fell back on the pillow. His eyes stared at the ceiling, and suddenly they closed. Comrade Ossipon slept in the sunlight."